Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Today we begin a brand new series, four-part series titled Money Matters. Money matters. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. I should have gone to mom's for breakfast. Instead, I'm going to be listening to a preacher talk about money. Well, you are. (laughs) You are. And my hope for this series and my hope for today is your joy and your freedom and your spiritual growth. Now, why did I decide to title the series, Money Matters? Well, because money matters, doesn't it? We think about money a lot. We think about how we're gonna earn money. We think about how we're gonna save money. We think about how we're gonna spend money. We think about how we're going to invest our money. We think about how we're going to give our money. We think about it a lot. We think about the money we don't have. We think about the money that we wish we had. Ain't that true? I mean, every single one of us at some point in our life had this conversation. If you won the lottery, what's the very first thing that you would do with your money? Anybody ever have that conversation? Okay, I guess it's just me. There's like two of you out there. Like, it's... Okay, all right, let's just pray and we'll head out and uh, get some lunch. We've all had those conversations. What would you do? And I'm pretty sure, church, that you guys had that conversation. And I'm pretty sure that what you said, you probably said, the first thing that I would do, I would send my pastor on a month-long vacation. I'm pretty sure. That's the, I just know you. I know you very well, and I appreciate you thinking of me that way. Not only does money matter to us, but money matters to God. Money matters to God a lot. And we see this by the way of how much the Bible speaks on the subject of money. 16 out of the 38 of, 16 out of 38 of Jesus's parables deal with money and possessions. Nearly 25% of Jesus's words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deals with money. There are more than 2,000 scriptures on giving money and possessions in the Bible, which is twice as much as faith and prayer combined. Money matters to God. Money also matters to God because the use of our money reveals what's important to us. uh, Money matters to God because it is a direct reflection of the condition of our hearts. Money matters to God because it reveals our spiritual maturity. Money matters to God because it reveals our commitment to the kingdom of God. And money matters to God because money reveals where our priorities lie. A few years back, Barna released a study on the ultimate financial goal for life in the life of a Christian. Like they asked a bunch of Christians, hey, what's the What's your ultimate goal for your finances? And so they took all of that data, and this is what we found. That the first and ultimate goal for life for the believer is to provide for my family. 22% said, I'm going to provide for my family, which I think we would all agree that we think that way, right? We want to provide for our family, absolutely. The second one is I want to support the lifestyle I want. I want to buy the clothes that I want to buy. I want to 
go on the trips and eat out and whatever lifestyle that I have, like I want to continue that lifestyle. Number three is I want to meet my obligations and needs. I, need, I got bills to pay, right? I got some bills to pay. And number four is I just want to be content. And it's not until number five that the believer says, I want to give charitably. Number six is I want to serve God with my money. So giving charitably and serving God with our money comes at five or six before I want to live my certain lifestyle, provide for my family. I got bills to pay and I got to be content. Number seven is I want to establish a financial legacy. And number eight, which honestly is a little surprising for me and a little scary because number eight is I want to be debt free. I would have thought it would have been like up there, one or two or three at least. And number nine, I want to show off my talent, my hard work. And number two is, is other. Now, while this might seem normal, this list might seem normal and natural to us and understandable to us. And for many of us, we might even agree with that. And we, our, our views and perspective, perspective on money and our goals might even match that. The truth is that I personally find it very difficult to accept. I find it difficult to accept in light of what the word of God calls the believer to be and do with their financial resources. I find it very difficult to accept when I read verses like Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, but first, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. What Jesus is saying there is like your number one priority for a believer is to seek the kingdom with all of our resources, with all of our energy, making the kingdom of God our number one priority, and then everything else will fall into its place. The lifestyle we want, the contentment, the vacations, the trips, the being debt-free, providing for our family. But many times we get that flipped, don't we? Hey, I got to meet all of these needs, and then the kingdom of God. But I just find it difficult to match up in light of verses like that. I find it difficult to accept in light of Jesus' calling to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. There was another study done that just calculated how giving and how Christians gave during the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, Christians would give 3.3% of their income to the Lord's work during the Great Depression. Today, on average, it's 2.5. And I think that's actually a little high. I really do. So it seems to me, church, that there's much room for growth in the lives of believers when it comes to finances. There's a lot of room for generosity in the life of the believer. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at a passage that gets to the very core and the very heart, the very essence of our giving. It's an encounter that Jesus has with the tax collector. And I think it's going to be very encouraging to you, but also very challenging. Now, if you've been around at Restoration for a while, you know a couple of things. You know that we don't shy away from any topic. If the Bible speaks about it, we speak about it. And I know being in ministry, talking about money could get a little uncomfortable. It really can. But I think that uncomfortableness is a very good thing. If you're anything like me, as I read the scriptures or as I listen to sermons, at the moment that I begin to feel uncomfortable, about what I'm hearing, that is the moment where I'm like, okay, God needs to work in this area of my life. 
So it might be a very good thing in your spiritual development and your spiritual growth. Will you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, 1 through 10. And I want to pray as we dig into this text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we don't have to wonder how we need to follow you with our finances. You give us clear instructions. And God, I hope and pray that you would speak to us today. That maybe if we feel a little guilty with our lack of generosity, God, you turn it into gratitude for what you've done. Maybe if we feel a little uncomfortable, God, may you turn that into a desire to pursue you more and more and grow in our faith. God, I pray you'd open our hearts for your word to just take root. Your word is powerful. Your word is authoritative in the life of the believer, and we don't stand over it, but we sit under and kneel under it, God. We submit to it. We love you. We thank you. Bless our time together today. And all of God's people said, amen. Verse 1, I just want to run through this text. Verse 1, this is Jesus uh, entering Jericho. It says this. He says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. I want to pause there for a second. Here we see Jesus entering this city of Jericho, and uh, there was a man there in Jericho named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was a chief tax collector, so he was hired by the Romans. Uh, this chief tax, this, this Zacchaeus uh, fellow, he was hired by the Romans, and if you know anything a little bit about that Jewish culture, they hated tax collectors. Like the Jewish people hated tax collectors because here's what they would do. These Jewish tax collectors were hired by Romans to tax the Jewish people, their own people. And so what they would do is they would tax the Jewish people, their own people, and then they would even, they would actually tax them a little extra. And a lot of times a lot more extra, and they would keep that money. They were essentially stealing from their own people, and tax collectors were very, very wealthy, and so the Jewish people hated tax collectors. I mean, they thought they were the scum of the earth, because how are you going to steal from your own Jewish friends and family? And so they were essentially just thieves. And here we see that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, meaning that he oversaw other tax collectors in the region. Luke also tells us that he was rich. He was wealthy. Most tax collectors, especially a chief tax collector, was rich. They were well off. They were wealthy. And not only do we know this, that, that Zacchaeus was extremely wealthy from the text, but we know from archaeology and studying of that culture is that Jericho was a very wealthy city. It was, a, it was a prosperous trading center, a lot of money flowing through. So man, Zacchaeus was loaded. Like he was rich. He has no worry about paying off debt. He had no worries about money whatsoever. He was extremely rich. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into an, a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when, he, and when they saw it, these were the religious leaders there, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. I want to point something out in this text that I've never really realized before. It says that as Jesus was passing through Jericho, Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. He was seeking to have an encounter with Jesus. Now, I asked myself this question. Why in the world was Zacchaeus 
seeking after Jesus? Why in the world was Zacchaeus this man who was loaded, who was rich, who has nothing to worry about, and who has everything in the world still seeking after Jesus? I think that this goes to show that a person can have all the money in the world and still have a God-sized hole in their heart that only God can fill. He was still seeking. It's possible to have everything, but to seek for something. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that is so true. No amount of money, no amount of material possessions can satisfy the longing in our heart but Christ. That's when we find rest. And notice what Luke tells us. He tells us that Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's a sinner. He ain't no saint. He's robbing people. He is at this point in the story a greedy, materialistic, selfish sinner. Yet Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want to I talk to you. Jesus initiated the encounter. Get down from that tree. I want to go to your house. And so they go to Zacchaeus' house and the other religious leaders, the snotty religious, snobby religious leaders were there. And they were like, I can't believe that Jesus is eating with the sinner. But he went to his house. Now, something supernatural, something unexplainable, something miraculous happened between verse 7 and between verse 8, and Luke decided not to tell us about it. So thanks a lot, Luke, for not telling us what happened. Because here's what happened next. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to the Lord. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold, four times. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder, don't you, what happened between verse 7 and between verse 8? Because Zacchaeus goes to his house with Jesus as a sinner, and in verse 8, he saved and converted. I wonder, and this is not in the Bible, this is just me using my imagination. I see Zacchaeus and Jesus having an intimate meal together talking about spiritual things, Jesus encouraging him to put his faith and trust in Jesus, not in material wealth and possessions. That's what I picture. And so what happens? Zacchaeus is converted. He's saved. He repents of his sin and places his faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, I think it's very interesting that Zacchaeus calls him Lord. And put that in your back pocket because we're going to come to it later. But look at what Zacchaeus does. He says, I'm going I'm to give half of my goods to the poor. All my material possessions, they're going to the poor. Immediately after his conversion, there was a change in Zacchaeus. There was a change in the way that he viewed and used his material possessions. And he goes a step further. He says, Jesus, Lord, if I defrauded anyone, which he did, he says, I'm going to restore it fourfold, four times. You see, in Old Testament Jewish law, if someone was caught cheating and they had to restore what they've taken, the law required to give back what they restored plus one-fifth of what they, they stole. One-fifth. So whatever you took plus one-fifth. Zacchaeus goes, no, no, no. 
I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to go beyond one-fifth. I'm going to restore it four times what I took. He goes way beyond. He understood his sinfulness, and he understood who the Lord was. And there was a change in him. And so how does, this is the key point here. How does Jesus respond to his actions? What does he say? He says this. He says, today salvation has come to this house. What is Jesus saying here? Better yet, let me actually address, what is he not saying? Does this verse teach that Zacchaeus was saved by works? Does it teach that he was saved because he gives his money to the poor and because he, 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 he restores four times? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. You can't earn your salvation. It's free. It's a gift of God. So to know he's not saying that salvation comes by his works, and he gives us a clue because he says, Today's salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is by faith. It is, it is by faith, both Jews and Gentiles, true spiritual children of Abraham, which you and I are, follow in his example of faith. In the Old Testament, even, people were saved by faith in Christ. They look forward by faith. We look backward to the cross by faith. Everyone is saved by faith, even in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 5, it says that Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous. So no, we're not, Jesus is not saying, hey, salvation comes by works. No, no. What is he saying then? What is Jesus saying? I believe that Jesus is validating Zacchaeus's faith. I believe what Jesus is doing is affirming Zacchaeus's faith, putting the stamp of approval on his faith. He's saying, Zacchaeus, because of your actions, because of your fruit, you are truly and genuinely saved. You see, Zacchaeus' actions revealed that his repentance and faith in Jesus were real. Zacchaeus' new use of money and material possessions were evidence that he had true saving faith and true conversion. Zacchaeus' new perspective on money revealed that there was a change in his heart. Zacchaeus' actions revealed that he was no longer mastered by greed and selfishness but by love for God and people. And Zacchaeus' actions revealed that he, 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 he now wanted to use his resources for the glory of God and the good of the people. It was the evidence, the fruit, that he was truly saved by the way he used his material possessions. And notice this too, church. Notice that Jesus never asked Zacchaeus to do that. We don't see it in the scripture. Jesus never asked Zacchaeus to give. Why? Because it was a natural outworking and overflow of his conversion. It came from the heart naturally. This idea of evidence with our finances and material possessions is also found in Luke, in Luke chapter 3. I just want to take a few minutes just to have you see that. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 is, 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 is preaching repentance, and he's preaching that the Messiah is coming. And he says this, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and then the crowds asked him, okay, what does it look like, right? This is what it says. And the crowds asked him, 
what then shall we do? So John, John, you're saying that we should live lives that reflect that we truly repented and we truly converted. Okay, well, show us how. What does it look like, John? He says this. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He begins to talk about their generosity. Think about that. He begins to talk about their generosity. If we truly are saved and we're truly repentant and converted, John is saying, hey, be generous. If you have two tunics and someone else doesn't have something, be generous. You see, in that culture, people would only need one tunic. It was like an undergarment. You only need one. You only need one underwear, right? Some of us don't wear any, but that's another, that's another sermon. But anyway, all right. If you, have two, if you have two, give one. Be generous. He says that's the fruit of your repentance, your generosity. And he, he goes further. Look at this, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. That, that would be like Zacchaeus. And said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Hey, stop being greedy. So he speaks to their generosity, and then he speaks to their selfishness and their greed. Stop, dude, stop, stop being greedy. Stop being selfish. So the crowds came to him, the tax collectors, and then the soldiers came to him. And he says, and they asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation." He's like, hey, you're using your force, you're using your authority as a soldier to steal from people. Again, he speaks to their greed and their selfishness. He speaks to their generosity, share what you have, and he speaks to their greed. And notice, do you notice this? Look what he says. And be content with your wages. The fruit that we are truly saved is to be generous, not greedy, selfless, and contentment in Christ. Philippians 4.13, you might be familiar with that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's used everywhere. It's always used like at the gym, right? These gym dudes, right? They have it on their shirts. I could do all things through Christ and I could bench press 300 pounds, you know, whatever, right? Like it, just gets, it gets taken out of, out of context. Do you know what that verse is really about? Contentment. I wish they could just retranslate it. I can be content in all situations, in all circumstances. Look at the context. Paul says, I could be content with much. I could be content with little, no matter God, give me neither poverty nor riches. You're mine. Contentment is fruit of our repentance. So, if there's anything I want you to remember from this passage, if I, if I could just give you one thought and one idea where you could hang your hat on this passage, it's this. That salvation not only results in a changed heart, but a changed wallet. That salvation not only results in a changed heart, a heart transformation, but in a changed wallet, in the way we use our financial resources and our material possessions for the kingdom of God. Now, what I want to do with the time that I have is I want to give you some basic principles on giving. Very basic things, things that that I've been doing for, I can't even remember for how long that I've been practicing, biblical principles on giving. Now, but before I do, what I want to do is just briefly, before I give you those principles, lay down the foundation. We need to have two things very, very, very clear to understand giving. We need to know who we give to. We need to know who we give to. Going back to Zacchaeus, remember when I, when I said, hey, put that in your back pocket? He calls him Lord. We give to the Lord. The reason why Zacchaeus did a 180 in his life and in his finances and his material possessions was because he knew who he was serving, the Lord. 
The Lord is a title for Jesus, which essentially means I'm the one in charge. I'm the Lord of your life. I'm the one in control. I'm the one in the driver's seat. You see, a lot of the times, us Christians, we like to have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. Isn't that true? Jesus, I I want you to save me. I want you to forgive me. I want you to bless me. I want you to love me. I want you to show grace. But I don't want you to be in control of my life. And especially, I don't want you to be in control of my wallet. Everything else but my wallet, God. It doesn't work that way. He's either both or he's none at all. That's who we give to. The second foundational thing is this. You and I, we, we don't own anything. You and I, we don't own anything. The Lord owns it all. We're just stewards and managers of what he has blessed us with. Psalm 24:1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live it, everything. All, everything belongs to God. He just called us to steward it well and to steward it for his kingdom and to steward it for the gospel, to steward it for his glory. So with that said, I want briefly, briefly want to give you these five biblical principles um, that are very helpful to us and that I've been practicing. And I can tell you that God has never let me down. Number one is this, is give locally. Give locally, meaning give to the local church. Disciples of Jesus are called to make it a priority to give to their local church. The church is the hope of the world. It is. The local church is God's primary vehicle to accomplish his mission. The local church directly impacts lives for all eternity. Give locally. Give to your local church. And if I could just be frank and be honest, give to a church that you trust. That's why we've been so transparent here at Restoration with our finances. Every year there's a members meeting where we say, here's what came in, here's what we did with your finances, here's what the budget looks, next, looks like next year. If you want access to our finances, go ahead. But go somewhere where you trust. Go somewhere you can give where you trust not only the theology, the preaching, but also the steward of the finances. But give to the local church. It's the hope of the world. We must make it a priority. We must be able to give to the local church our very first and our very best not our last and our leftovers. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Essentially, it's saying, hey, bring your best and first to God. Make it a priority. And God will bless you. God will care for you. Now, as a caution, I'm not saying that if you give a certain amount, God's going to bless you that this ain't no prosperity teaching. God could bless you in a lot of other ways. It doesn't ha- the Bible never says that if we give to God that he has to bless us materialistic. It doesn't say that. Can he? Absolutely. But he blesses us with such much more things than material possessions. Number one, give locally. Number two, give proportionally. Give proportionally. 1 Corinthians 16 says, now concerning the collections for the saints, this was Paul taking a collection from the church in Corinth to bless the other believers in Jerusalem. It says this, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Look what it says, as he prospers. Give proportionate to your income. Give proportionate to your income. The more we make, the more we ought to give. The less one makes, the less one ought to give. In our household, 
Every time I got a raise, I'd give more. Every time I took a pay cut, I'd give less. It's proportionate to your income. Now, some people teach that it has to be 10%. And you've probably heard that before. Like, it has to be 10. It has to be a tithe. It has to be a tithe. Well, the truth is that I don't think that the New Testament teaches that it has to be 10%. It's not a command for the New Testament believer to give 10%. If we really want to study the Old Testament and, and go with what they, what they really gave, it actually comes out to 23%, right? But I'm, I think most pastors are not going to stand up and say, hey, give 23% of your income, right? 10 sounds good, but not 23. For the New Testament believer, it doesn't have to be 10%. It, doesn't, it never says it. Now, does that mean, then, that we can just give whatever? Well, man, I, I don't have to give 10%. I'm going to tip God. I'm giving a little tip here. It doesn't. It actually frees us up to be as generous as possible to the kingdom and the work of God. So everyone has to decide. Paul actually says this in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says that everyone must decide in his own heart. Every single family, every single person just has to look at their finances and say, how can I get proportionate to my income? I personally believe that 10% is a good guideline. I can't say it's a command from the Lord. I can't back it up with the Bible, but I do think it is a very good guideline to start. It allows the kingdom of God to function. It allows the kingdom of God to thrive. Can we just think, can we just for a second think about it practically? not just biblically, for just one second. The church can't thrive, let alone survive, off 2.5%. It just can't. Any church can't thrive, or let alone survive, off 2.5%. Very quiet in here today. Just know I love you guys. I love you a lot. And it's because I love you, I say these. Maybe you're not giving right now, proportionately. We're not even anywhere to the 10%, again, guideline. What if you begin just simply by 1% every two months, increase it every two months, next couple months, 2%. Next couple of months, 3%, and so forth and so on. Number three, give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. This was, these were the believers in Macedonia who gave sacrificially to the church and to the poor in Jerusalem. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, they were going through some severe stuff. They were afflicted, okay? Uh, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on, on their part. So they're afflicted and they're extremely poor, meaning they're in poverty, yet they joyfully gave. The text actually says that they were begging Paul to give yet they were extremely poor. It's sacrifice, giving sacrificial to the kingdom of God. Now, what happens, Johnny, if I'm in a financial difficulty and I just can't give? Here's the thing. God tells us to give, right? And God never gives us an exclusion clause. He never says, okay, well, you, can't, you don't have to give if you're going through a rough financial season. He never does. I think God delights when we obey him, even if it's not convenient. And I think if we're really, really honest, even in our hard times, and I've been there, we can all give something. I think we can. I think we can. Number four, give joyfully. Give joyfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Is it our duty as believers to give? Absolutely. But it's also our delight 
we get to give to the kingdom. It is our privilege to give of our material wealth to the Lord. And fifth and lastly, give regularly. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, on the first day of every week, which is Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. We see this, that there was some kind of collection weekly in the life of the church. It's regular. It's, and it's, it was regular because it was a priority to the believers. And what's a priority to us, we plan things, right? When something's a priority, we plan that out. And the same thing with giving regularly. I encourage you to give regularly, whether it's every week or every other week when you get paid every month, whatever it is. But plan it out. We plan out our priorities. We plan out our giving. I want to end, I want to I share something with you that I've never shared publicly, ever. But before I do, let me just leave you with this last thought. Let me remind you, church, that Jesus is looking for disciples, not donors. That Jesus is looking for disciples, not donors. He's not looking for people to just say, oh, I have to give. I'm just going to donate. It's not charity. Giving through the church to God is not charity. It's an act of worship. And it's a part of our discipleship. Church, what I'm about to share with you is pretty personal to me. Very personal, actually. And if you know me well enough, I hope that you know that, I hope you know me well enough to know that I'm not sharing this because I'm trying to make myself look good or because I want kudos. You know me well. There's there's nothing to boast about right here. Trust me, ask Christina. But I, I share this with you because one, I'm called to lead by example. I'm called to lead by example. I share this with you because I will never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do. That's called hypocrisy. And I share this with you because I wanna encourage you. Before I'm a pastor, I'm a disciple of Jesus first. There ain't no difference between you and I. I'm a disciple just like you. You see, when Christina and I first started Restoration Church, we had no money. The church had no money. Um, We had a few thousand dollars in our personal savings. That's all we had. And we had to pay a couple of thousand dollars to go out to Alabama to receive some training for church planting. We paid that out of our own savings. It was a lot of money. Um, We didn't have a big old church to back us up and send us with thousands and thousands of dollars. We just did it. So we paid for that. And then uh, we got the training. We came back and we're like, all right, let's, let's get this. Let's get this thing launched. Let's work the plan. One of the first things that we had to do was do all of our legal work correctly. And to do that, that was a couple thousand dollars. And so we paid out of our savings for that. And so we started recruiting people and I'm telling you, it was, it was tough. More expenses as we had these interest parties and trying to recruit and get this thing going. And we completely emptied our savings. Literally had nothing, had nothing. Then as we continued to plan and work the plan, things came up and we had credit cards and we put some things on our personal credit cards for the church. By God's grace, we've been able to pay those off. We paid them off, not the church, we did. Our team continued to grow, but as our team continued to grow, the funds just didn't catch up. We needed more money. And so God called me to do something that I was like, are you sure? 
He called me to like cash out my retirement savings. And I did. I have no retirement. And I'm not saying again, I do it all over again. Don't feel bad. I actually think I disobeyed God because I waited so long to do that. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And the only regret that I have is that I wish I could give more and I wish I didn't wait because I waited a couple months to give. We cashed out our savings, we maxed out our cards, cashed out our retirement, and I would do it all over again. All over again. Being in ministry, I've often heard so many comments about pastors and money. Pastor just wants my money. Pastor just wants my money. If you think I want your money, I think you gotta find another church. I don't want your money. I don't. Oh, the pastor, I'm sure he doesn't even give to the church. He just takes and takes and takes. Well, church, my family and I, we continue to give to restoration. We continue to give 10% of our income, one family income, which is a lot for us. Like it's a lot to give 10% of one salary. And we continue to give to Restoration Church. We are not all called to cash out our savings and a retirement. But we are called, all of us, to generosity. All of us. Why did I do that? Why did I give essentially everything that I had? Because I believe eternity matters. Because I believe that the only thing you can take to heaven is people. The reason that Christina and I did that was because God gave his very first and his very best to me, his son, Jesus. The reason I gave that, gave it up, was because Jesus came to seek and save me. I was Zacchaeus. Verse 10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I was so lost. The reason why I gave was because Jesus gave his life urgently for me. Because Jesus made it a priority to give his life for me. Because Jesus made it a priority to give his life sacrificially for me. Because Jesus willingly, not reluctantly, gave his life for me. Until this very day, Jesus is still giving. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Essentially, I gave because he gave first and he gave more, a lot more. We give because he gave. I wanna leave you with this last thing. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was in heaven before his incarnation, had all the privileges, all the glory. He was rich in every single way, but became poor by becoming a man. Jesus was poor. His parents and his family didn't have enough money to pay the actual temple sacrifice. They had to use pigeons because they were poor. Jesus was homeless. He had no place to rest his head anywhere. Look what it says. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Rich in eternal life, rich in joy, rich in peace, rich in grace, rich in mercy, and if God decides to, rich materialistically as well. You and I believe are rich because of his poverty. That is the standard of giving. That is the standard of sacrifice. Jesus giving his life for us.
Now, where does a person without Christ find themselves? Because this is for the believer, rich in Christ. But what about someone who doesn't know Christ? If you don't know Christ, without him, you will find yourself earthly rich, but heavenly broke. You will find yourself financially debt-free, but spiritually bankrupt. You will find yourself financially profitable. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus says, all who come to me will never, I will never cast out. Jesus is the one who said, Zacchaeus, I want to talk to you. I want to have an encounter with you. I want a relationship with you. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've never acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, that's what he's doing today. I want to change your heart. And the way to your heart is through your wealth. I want to give you riches, forgiveness, salvation, grace, mercy, hope, purpose. All of that stuff is available eternally in Christ. But if you would repent of your sin, meaning turn the other way, 180, you're going this way, living your way, the way of the world, whatever you decide to do, you're selfish your way, 180 is going the other way. Turn around, place your faith in Jesus, and it's his work on the cross that saves us. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.